Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a longtime friend and friend of Village Global, James Courier, co-founder of NFX. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Harry. James, I believe this is the third podcast uh, we've done together, so it's great to have you back. Let's keep doing it. Totally. So you look a lot at network effects businesses. One of the uh, other thinkers in network effects businesses is is Reid Hoffman. Uh, Reid Hoffman founded LinkedIn, uh, I don't know, 15 plus years ago. And ever since, people have been talking about disrupting LinkedIn. Uh, people have tried. Uh, you've probably been involved with, with some of those companies. Why has it been so hard to disrupt LinkedIn? And what, in 2019, gearing to 2020, would need to be true for you to invest in something that would that would try to disrupt it? Where do you think the opportunity is? That's a great question. I, you know, it's true. They they were founded 19 years ago, and for 18 years, people have been trying to take them down. And I was involved in six different efforts, <laughs> all of which failed. And. Why did uh, they fail? Um, they fail because... Or why has it been so hard to disrupt? It's been hard for a bunch of reasons. Um, one is that um, LinkedIn creates a lot more value than they extract. And so getting a new startup up and going um, and starting to show that you can create value or, or, or take value is hard. Number two, you know, the, the direct network effect is one of the strongest network effects that we have. Um, and, uh, and once you get it going, as Facebook has shown or... Um, you know, as, as, as the telephone network has shown or uh, fax machines are still around, you know, because of this direct network effect, <clears throat> it's very hard to disrupt them. So that's the second thing. The third thing is that uh, it uses real names, yeah. right? And so uh, you've got an SEO functionality around it where you type in someone's name and LinkedIn is the number one or two or three that comes up. And so there's a lot of reinforcing things about managing your identity around your real name. And of course, if you look at the two most valuable social networks in the Western world, they were also the two social networks out of the thousands that have been tried, which were the first to get to real names, and that's Facebook and LinkedIn. And so um, the, these things tend to make it uh, hard to disrupt. There's also a, a relationship in terms of status, where if, if, you were on, uh, if you're on another network, if your profile, if your professional profile is on another network other than LinkedIn, what does it say about you? Because we know the coolest kids are on LinkedIn because they were the first kids on there. Um, so, and there's many other things that we could go into, but it's been it's proven very difficult to to disrupt them. Um, and if and if you're going to, it uh, you're going to have to use a different interface, most likely. Yeah. It can't be that. And so. What are some clever approaches you've seen or imagine you leading the seed or if you yourself as an entrepreneur were trying to tackle LinkedIn, how would you think about it? Well, I've been a venture capitalist for two years now. I'm not sure it's my job to proffer what the best approach is. It's my job to help people yeah. navigate to their best approach. I, I will say that Branch Out, started by Rick Marini, was one of the better attempts because it sought to use the Facebook graph yeah. to build out an 800 million person social network around career. And they did so, but you know, ultimately, it it uh, it didn't it didn't get there. But that was a good, that was a good attempt, right? Yeah, I've been exploring an attempt. It, it, the idea is called cosine, and it's basically trying. You know, the problem it's trying to solve is when I go to you, James, and say, "Hey, I saw you're connected to you know X Y Z person. Can you make an intro?" And you say, "Who's X Y Z person?" Um, it basically it's a graph of people you really vouch for and who really vouch for you, um, and. 
I think if you could build that, well, there's two questions. One is how do you build that graph? Two is if you built that graph, um, how valuable is that? Can you build a big business? And the three categories we have are um, people who shaped your career, people who you'd work with anywhere, and then people who uh, you think are rising stars. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's one question I have. If you built that graph of people for each category who they truly believe, is that a valuable company? Our approach to building it is trying to sort of um, make early social capital investing uh, a thing. So right now, for example, imagine you know uh, one of Mark Zuckerberg's early roommates or, or you know people at Harvard or whoever who discovered him and said, "Wow, I think this is a great entrepreneur." If they didn't have money to invest, they sort of you know missed out. Or you on Twitter, right? You were uh, right. you were one of the first people who discovered Twitter. You sent it to Bill Gurley. You you know you weren't think, investing at the time. Uh, Imagine if you had sort of made a social capital bet and said, I'm willing to stake my reputation that Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey or whoever, everyone is, are going to be big entrepreneurs. Uh, I think we could see a whole set of future fund managers build their reputation by saying, I discovered this person early. Uh, and so uh, make sort of an economy around early adopters. Um, I, I don't think we, we do this enough, which is... Um, give status to people who are in early. I, I think you could also rebuild Yelp, for example. Uh, this sort of joke of a site called proveyourhipster.com. But you're the first person to discover this band, or first person to discover this restaurant, or first person to discover this. Um, and the more earlier you discover something, the more points you get, the more status you get, um, and maybe even actual economics. Um, and I, I think that early adopter, or I call them hipster startups, can be applied elsewhere. But in the context of LinkedIn, the idea is, it, one, it's sort of give to get. So if you're a VC, you're, it's your job to find out who are the next big things. And so you need to give your data to get the community data. Um, and then two is, um, you know, you could build sort of an economy of people who care about, um, you know, cool hunting or, or getting a reputation for discovering yeah. talent. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're mentioning a, a number of different psychological and emotional motivations people might have to do this. You're also referring to things like being the mayor on Foursquare yes. or staking in the yes. blockchain or various other things. And I think what you're pointing out is all true. I think, I think now that we're 20 years into this network thing, though, yeah. I think you're going to need to find more than that. Yeah. That would be my, my advice yeah. just as a VC or yes. as a – is just I think that um, <clears throat> there's, there's a drain of emotional and psychological need. Yeah. So we all have our needs. But LinkedIn is sucking out enough of it. Yeah. Facebook sucking out another part. Dribble sucking out another part. You've got this sort of, uh, you know, Penelope of of companies that are drawing out that uh, that need, so that the energy level, the the sort of valence jump that you would need to get people to activate a new yeah. network, is so incredibly high. Maybe it's not tax. Maybe it's like hijacked. That, that we really haven't seen one since Snapchat eight nine years ago. And wow. we, everyone talks about TikTok, but they're spending twenty plus million dollars a month to buy traffic onto that thing. I'm not sure how long it's going to last, but um, so, so I, I, I appreciate all of the yeah. psychological insights, yes. but just recognize that it's we're just deep into the cycle of using yes. psychology to drive adoption of new network effects. And, and it's proven so difficult that we just yeah. haven't seen much in nine years. What does crypto do to network effects? Because uh, Chris Dixon, Herbology, or some people might say that crypto networks, i.e. offering tokens, are a potential way to disrupt uh, you know, network effects of LinkedIn, Facebook, yeah. otherwise by giving more people stake. Yeah, I thought it was a brilliant article Chris wrote um, a few years back, four years ago, uh, where he talked about how <clears throat> by issuing tokens that 
that can extensively stand for value, you can yeah. essentially pay people's left brains to get engaged with something that doesn't make sense from their right brain, their emotional right. perspective. So you're right to point out, as the emotionality of the whole thing drops, can we just pay people to do the right thing and sort of replace LinkedIn? And the challenge, it's possible. And, and again, like that's another tool. And the right combination of all these tools could end up producing the thing we all want, which is a better LinkedIn. I mean, if you were to rank LinkedIn's product, what would you rank it out of 10? It's like a four. Right? It's like a three or four. It works. It's fast, but it doesn't, it's not great. Um, we'd want something much better. And we'd, yeah. um, but, but in order to get that, you're going to have to have this you know, sort of alchemaic combination of things to get there. The token idea is a good one. The problem I've seen with it is that you move from your left brain to your right brain. And yeah. that, at the beginning, if you're being motivated by your left brain, and at some point, you and other the new the new uh, registrants into the network need to be now motivated more by right brain because you can't keep giving out tokens forever, and that's really tough. It's tough for both the management team to build a product which satisfies both the left and the right brain need, and then makes that transition at the right and time. What's an example of, of satisfying the right brain need? I want to get just a better picture of. What that looks like. Oh, satisfying the right brain is, um, oh, I see my old high school girlfriend connect with me on LinkedIn, on, on Facebook. Right. I'm never leaving this place, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Um, there's there's an emotional attachment we have. What did Twitter really figure out? Because, you know, Facebook, figured, you know, real names around existing social relationships. LinkedIn did this, you know, same thing, digitized professional relationships. What, what did Twitter figure out? Or what was the moat that you saw or network effect that you saw that created space for them that yeah. couldn't be filled by Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn. I, I felt like they discovered a new pleasure center in the human brain, which was, um, I'm just sitting here and now I'm getting other humans' attention, right? So we're pack animals. We desire hierarchy. We desire affection. And, and, and most importantly, we desire other humans' uh, attention because we know that that means we're safe and we're valued and right. we feel like we're alive. Uh, that's how our brains were, were evolved. And so... Uh, Twitter was a pure shot of just attention. And we love that and we need that. And Facebook gives it that to us, but it's in a much narrower group, which is why you see 97% or whatever it is, 90% of all the tweets are done by 3% of the people or something like this. Because those people have sort of, it's a marketplace of attention. And in most marketplaces, you see things professionalize. Yeah. You, you, you see power sellers in most marketplaces. And in Twitter, you have these power sellers. I'm curious where you see opportunities for consumer social today, or, or even ongoing. Some people say, you know, VCs been bearish. Some people think there's real opportunity. I, I think email has been under. You guys, you know, use it a lot for Signal, but mm-hmm. underexplored as a there's a lot of data on email mm-hmm. about who knows who, the strength of their relationships. Google's really increased their restrictions on that in the last year, so I think that that door is shutting just as many of the other social doors have Unless shut. Unless we move to superhuman, but. Yeah, but at 30 bucks a month, yeah. you're not going to get the same penetration. And um, it, it won't be really, really a platform at all. Uh, but most likely, yeah. it could, could have. I mean, we're seeing a lot of social stuff around gaming, yeah. for instance. Um, you can see uh, social around calendars. You can see it around emails. You could see it around messaging. You're still seeing some new messaging things coming out that are growing pretty quickly. Um, you're seeing it around um, uh, live video. Yeah. I mean, um, YY and China and things like it are really taking off. Yeah. Um, you know, the, we had the we had the meerkat, we had the the um, you know 
Periscope House Party. House Party, but HQ trivia. Yeah, but and the, those didn't end up becoming big, but there are ones that are becoming big. And again, yeah. it's sort of like finding the the wonderful snowflake out of all the many attempts. You know, yeah. look, Facebook was the 156 social network with the same five features. They just happened to have real names and had an incredible, yeah. incredible team. You were close to your investor, investor in in Meerkat, and then House Party. What either them specifically, or, or why are the others? Why has no one yet figured it out? Is it ret- is retention the biggest problem, or what sort of the you don't build enough of a moat? Because they got a lot of use. They've caught lightning in a bottle twice, right? They did. Your they did. Ben Rubin and his yet? team caught lightning in a bottle twice. It's very rare for someone to do it once. Um, yeah, it's it's unclear why it didn't take. Did they need to get more raw? Did they get, you know, look, I mean, um, humans are driven by war. They're driven by sexuality. They're driven by money. There's some sort of ugly sides of us that drive a lot of traffic when you're talking about social. And when, when you look at the web, you've got to understand that any media on the web is going to be uh, more revealing of our raw side yeah. than perhaps the mediated world of TV and its three, you know, CBS, NBC, than those channels we're going we're gonna to show us what we're really about. Yeah. And so you have to be willing to play a little bit more in those darker regions, and, yeah. and Ben and his team weren't, and maybe that's for his benefit. Um, yeah. But in the end, um, you know, there's, you know, I remember a statistic, something like 40% of the traffic in the second quarter of Yahoo in 1998 was um, porn-related. Wow. You know, and Tumblr was mostly... Yeah porn related and 55% of traffic on Craigslist is dating related and you know so so the, when you look at media properties and, and large-scale uh, traffic you're often going to find elements of that and and because we didn't in Meerkat and in uh, and in House Party then maybe that's one of the yeah. reasons that, that we didn't see it get much bigger and, and, and evolve through that phase into something like a Snapchat where yeah. it started also with you know dick pics and other things famously right. in uh, high school and then evolved into something quite different yeah I, there was this line that anytime there's a new platform, there, the three P's often uh, become most popular for in porn, pills, camera, maybe it was gambling or something, some P. Um, but to that end, are you staying close to you know, any new computing platforms that you think are close to taking off, whether it's VR, AR, or, or something else? That might we look at those selectively as the founders come through. That's really more of a founder choice than a sector choice. Those sectors have been hard for the last few years. Um, we didn't invest heavily in them. Um, we had, I think, two investments, uh, small, small investments in it. Um, it got close enough to see how hard it is. Yeah. I remember uh, when they, going back to Miracle for a second, Ben Rubin said in a shift to house parties that, um, you know, YouTube created a new economy of YouTubers. And for live video, there wasn't the same level of quality uh, of, of sort of a new economic class of you know, live streamers who... Sure, and there wasn't a lot of, you know, copyright, you know, copyrighted content to pirate. Yes. Remember, I mean, yes. they sold for $1.6 and Google had an escrow of $600 million to pay off all of the rights holders like Fox and whatnot, and 100% of that $600 million went out to the rights holders yeah. to pay them off for all the copyright violations that YouTube used to, yeah. to get their network effect going. You, you introduced the term market networks in 2015, 2016, a few years ago. Um, how is when you introduce the term uh, market networks and how it's evolved since you've written? Sure. In 2015, we wrote an article about market networks, be looking at the idea that the direct network effect of a network um, is something that we already have in a lot of the work and service marketplaces 
in, in the world today. So for instance, if you're, if you're putting together a wedding, you need a DJ and you need a florist and you need a caterer and you need a location and you need a wedding planner. And these people all know each other. There is already a network of these people who know each other. And there is a marketplace for buying services between them as they all come together to work on a complex project. And that's um, something that you see in consulting. That's something you see in uh, RV rentals and, yeah. and RV, RV rental vacations. You see this all over the place. Um, whenever you look at service economy type work. And so the idea was that we were going to digitize these relationships and, and facilitate the workflow between all these people uh, so that they could work on complex projects where the people doing the work matters. Now this was in counter distinction to Uber and Lyft, which did a really good job of commoditizing um, the, the product, which was just a ride from point A to point B, and many people can perform that service, and you as a rider don't really care who drives you there. 99.9% .9 of the people who you get in their car can do it for you. I haven't had a bad trip in Uber or Lyft, and I primarily use Lyft, um, you know, since they began. Um, and they, of course, don't generally care who you are. Um, you know, generally, this is 99.9% .9 of the time. There are these 0.1% where there's violence or whatever, and, and that's, those are awful. So I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about in general. So those are, those are commoditized networks, whereas these market networks are non-commoditized. I actually care who my architect is. I care who my wedding planner is. So that's what the market networks were. And, and we sort of said, this is, this is happening, this is coming, because now we all understand a marketplace interface, and we all understand a network interface. Now that we're all facile in that, we can start combining these interfaces into singular products and, and start to birth something new. That was yeah. the idea. I'm curious for a couple of ideas that sort of create new new types of economies. So I'll give a couple examples to get your perspective on. One is uh, is homeschool. Uh, homeschool right now is you know, yeah, it's 10 of the country. It's pretty large, but a small percent of the of the country, and it's it's mostly religious. But I'm curious if you can create sort of an Airbnb of homeschool or sort of a um, you know infrastructure business around homeschool that enables people who are teaching their their child uh, to also teach other children and create sort of a new economy of homeschoolers, parallel system outside the, uh, the traditional K through 12. The other idea I'm curious about is um, therapy is, is really expensive. Could you give sort of affordable $20 an hour therapy, therapy done by college students? Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so new economies around these tips. Yeah, so um, around the... Um the school one, a few years ago, my wife and I did homeschool for a year with our kids. We called it Buckminster Learning Lab. And it was after Buckminster Fuller, who said, you cannot disrupt very entrenched bureaucracies. much better to build something brand new and let them melt away. Um, and so we were, we were looking, and we, we did it for a year. And, and I think it would be great to have an Airbnb for, or some sort of infrastructure. <clears throat> um, and I know there are companies like Homeroom and and uh, OutSchool and other folks who are building marketplaces around courses for kids in and out of school. Um, and it would be wonderful, I think, if we could develop something using technology that would be much better than education uh, as it stands today. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I pray for it, actually. It's, I think um, it's hurting us. So, but uh, that's, a, that's definitely a passion of mine. On the other hand, I'll, I can tell you the challenges we found. Yeah, the, the, challenges, the challenges to, to doing something new really comes around the parents. And this is, this is what people don't really think about, that <clears throat> the teachers, the administrators, the way we finance schools, all that stuff is not really a barrier. We've tried charter schools. We've tried voucher systems. We've tried all sorts of things. And the kids don't know any better. So none of those things are really the barrier. The barrier is the parents. The parents went through a particular experience in their childhoods. 
And if their children don't go through that same experience, it freaks them out. It makes them, the, the, the phrase they say in their head is, am I risking my child's future? And it took me three years to figure that out until I was talking to a woman and she finally said, oh, you're homeschooling your kids. Aren't you risking your child's future? And I was like, that's it. That's, that is the voice in the head of the 99% of parents who would never send their kids, unless for a religious reason, to homeschool. And, and then homeschool ends up only attracting the problem boys. And I say that with, as a father of four boys, is that the school systems are much better designed for organized um, sort of responsive people, yeah. you know, um, organized and obedient people. Yeah. And when you have these unruly boys, the school systems have a hard time managing them, and so their parents are desperate to find a new solution, and so they either try homeschool or they try alternative schools. And so when you look at alternative schools, that's what you end up with. Yeah. And this was opaque to me, this whole process, this whole like mechanism. I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for this. I'm, not, I'm saying this is a negative. Yeah. It's just, it was sad for me to see how the mechanisms were actually working. Right. Because if my kid is fine, I just leave him in the regular school because I went through that school and you know what? I don't want to risk my child's future. Right. Like even if it's a bad education, even if it's not bringing them up to be the most glorious human being they could be, I'm, I'm not going to take the risk right. because who knows what's on the other side. And boy, if my child ended up hating me because I took them out of the regular school system, then that's a double loss. Right. So it's really the parents who are blocking education from moving forward and, and, and preventing something and from this. On, on the other parents. I mean, when we were doing our homeschool, the parents were freaked out because they're like, "What are you doing something better for your kid than yeah, what I'm doing yeah. for my kid?" And there's a lot of underlying tones of that, and so, and so that's that's one thing. Um, and it should, just double down, share more about your critique. I remember a few years ago we were talking about this, and you were saying, "Hey, schools teach you about what you learned in the past. I want to, you know, I want my kids to think about what the you know, the future." Or say yeah, more about I mean, look, we, we all want to play God and, and write the curriculum for kids, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and, and it does seem to me that I would much rather have my kids in a class called Predicting the Future than one called History, um, which would be a combination of history and probability and math, and, and because Predicting the Future is a really useful skill today and in the future, whereas you know history is typically a lot of facts. At least that's the way the industry of history, if you can call that vertical within the academic community and industry, has evolved over time. Or you know why not have a, co- a course called Asking Good Questions? Because isn't asking good questions the most important thing we do? Or how about picking people? Yeah, wow. Right? How about a course on being the person that can be picked? Like, yeah. what's your communication style? Yeah. If you go to the GSB people, the, the, the Stanford Business School people, and ask them, what was the most valuable course? Almost all of them say touchy-feely, yeah. which is uh, otherwise known as interpersonal dynamics. And it's really a psychology course that teaches you about you and how you interact with others. That's the most valuable thing that people get out of Stanford Business School. Yeah. Everyone thinks they're going there to learn about finance and money and whatnot, but you ask them, inevitably they say touchy-feely. Yeah. And if you go to Harvard Business School, they'll tell you the same thing. Lead is the most valuable course. Quote-unquote, it's all about lead. And lead, when I was going to Harvard Business School, was about the same thing. It was about yeah. interpersonal dynamics. So where are the courses in high school on that? Right. Right? Um, Anyway, there's so many things we should be teaching ourselves that we're not because we've pushed them out because of biology and calculus and AP scores that get us into the right college, all in the service of buying status. What would be in the class of picking people? How do you think about picking people that's different perhaps than, than others do? Yeah, you would, it, would, it, would be a, it would be a combination of psychology, <clears throat> a lot of introspection. Um, it would be uh, 
uh, a course that would include history that would talk about you know what happens to people over time if you pick you know you find this person really funny because he's making fun of all the people at the lunch table but long term what that what is that like to actually have that person as your friend yeah. and wow. right or um, you know you're picking this boy because he's uh, to be your boyfriend because he's the biggest jerk in the classroom and wears that leather jacket he's cool and strong and powerful and he wears you know yeah. you know single color you know everything and he seems like the alpha, but what's that person really like to date or live with or marry yeah. or try to raise wow. children with? And helping people understand themselves and others through this process is, is something that we spend all of our lives doing in an ad hoc way. Yeah. And it's the cause of the most time, the most real expense, and the most pain. Yeah. And we have no guidelines. We have no language for it. And you have these little things popping up around people like the Hoffman Institute or Esalen or, um, or Landmark Farm or all these things pop up to try to heal the edges but it's really only for people who are quote unquote broken. And so most of us don't ever go do those things. And if all this stuff was just part of the curriculum, then no one would feel like they were an outcast for yeah. needed to quote unquote fix themselves. Right. We all need to fix ourselves all the time, every day. You know, my kids go to this wonderful high school and their motto is always we begin again. Yeah. And I love that. Always we begin again with ourselves and right. with our relationships and with each other. Yeah. forgiveness and all that stuff and that's the most important stuff and we don't even begin to open that door up for kids when they're open to it and they could really learn the most right. I want to talk about higher education for a second because I think it's been interesting that you know in the last 10 years 15 years the um, coursework has become commoditized it's become online education is equalized and so Harvard Stanford etc uh, Princeton, where you went, had to differentiate from a place where you learned unique knowledge to a place where you got a unique network, you got a credential that really mattered. And I'm curious, um, you know, if I asked you, James, who are the, you know, not only the best people you've worked with, obviously, but people who you think, five rising stars, going back to Cosine for a second, who you think are really going to be something um, who you spent some time with, I, th I would take that higher than a Princeton or Harvard or Stanford degree, and yet I don't know those people. Um, so I'm curious about peer-to-peer -peer credentials. Basically, how does higher education get disrupted? Well, sort of one step, the education itself got commoditized. I wonder if the credentials could get disrupted or commoditized. No, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Maybe, you know, if, if, if that's what you can put you know, foot forward with, with Cosign, maybe that would be the thing that unlocks it. Because as opposed to a LinkedIn, yeah. disrupting higher education status systems, that's, that's something that, that has also been, you know, proven to be very difficult to break. But I think it would probably be easier than LinkedIn yeah. at this point. Right. And uh, so I agree with you. I think that, that you know, I, I advocate for my kids going to college, but I also tell them when you get there, don't do a lick of work. Yeah. You know, just make friends and do stuff and yeah. make stuff and because the value of these institutions is now purely in the status signaling yeah. and in the rubbing up of your stone against the other stones right. to smooth you out yeah. and to give you the excellence and the knowledge and the the, the, the the ability to bob and weave through life that all these other smart people will give you so really it's the selectivity which is the value yeah it's the selectivity of being around other great people um, and so if you could substitute those two things, status and selectivity of the rubbing, because yeah. we all need, we all need um, advice and, and little bumps against others. We're like, oh, he said it that way. That was so much more interesting than yeah. the other way he could have said it. You know, All those little learnings accumulate in a person to make them excellent and make them joyful. And yeah. that's ultimately what we're trying, to, we're trying to get to. If you could build a system, both software and societally, that would do that, I would be a huge advocate. This reminds me 
two things. One is Paul Graham just had this post this weekend about lessons and basically says the biggest lesson you have to learn or unlearn in, in the real world is that not every, you don't sort of in, in, in what you do in high school and college is you sort of study for the test. But in real world, it's not as simple as yeah, hey, study, test, like it's much more uh, generative or, or um, it's much more you have to ask the questions, you have to sort of create what the test is. Um, and that also reminded me of a talk you gave uh, four years ago at the Greylock Product Summit where you said, here are the things you had to unlearn after your time and growth. Yeah. Unlearning as a skill, that could be its own course. That could be its own course, yeah. unlearning, absolutely. See, these are all these wonderful pieces of curriculum that we could have if we weren't busy doing AP Biology. Yeah. And so what do you think is going to be the, like, do you not see much change in the next decade or two decades in this? Or what's, for if there's homeschooling startup out there, what's, um, what do you think is an approach? If we are going to get change, it's going to come from the Bay Area and it's going to come from software. Yeah. No doubt about it. I just can't see... Everyone's making money. Uh, everyone's got status in their communities yeah. uh, the way the old system is, and the parents are highly resistant. You're going to have to find the non-utilizers, yeah. and you're going to have to uh, give them a, a new thing. Yeah. Um, hopefully you can do it. I hope, I hope you do. Yeah. And what, what about the, uh, the therapist idea? Because basically the thesis behind that, that idea is that not everyone needs a $150. So there, there, there are plenty of companies trying to go after this. I mean, Seven Cups and others are, are, and I only know a few, but I've probably talked to eight or nine or 12 in the last year wow. of people who are trying to make networks. Well, everyone sends me these, right? Everyone sends me the marketplaces. So I get to see almost all the marketplaces. And I love it. Um, uh, but, you know, they've got ones just for dating. They've, you know, and the relationship issues. Yeah. They've got, not dating, but yeah. for relationship issues. They've got one for, you know, work. They've got mentor things. Yeah. There, there's a lot of them out there. And I I've think, seen Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, all sorts yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I think they're dynamite. I think they're dynamite. There's a thing called co-counseling that's been around for about 50 years. Um, like Alcoholic Anonymous. Alcoholic Anonymous has been around for a long time. So, yeah, I, I think that um, we should see more and more of those. And, and I'm, I'm very hopeful that... Um, you know, peer-to-peer help um, and giving people attention. It's that attention yeah. economy. You know, if, if I'm working on a problem and by myself in a room alone, I can work at X rate. But if you're talking to me about yeah. the problem and being interested in my thinking about it, I bet I'm 3X or 5X better. Yeah. And I think applying that basic human synaptic response to human attention using software or community uh, to improve all these things that are so important. I think that's a great fertile soil for sure for the next 20 years. You come across a lot of entrepreneurs who are in between things, thinking of their next thing. We, we've done some stuff together around that. And you you had this post, Hidden Patterns of Great Startup Ideas. What is sort of the most common advice you find yourself giving for entrepreneurs who are really great entrepreneurs and sort of evaluating between a few different ideas or open-minded um, and looking for um, even just approaches for how to how to come up with startup ideas. Often, having looked at possibly at this point, you know, tens of thousands of startup ideas, and and had hundreds and hundreds myself, most of which we put in the trash can. Uh, you know, we can we can I can I feel like I can now reliably put ideas into three buckets. One is uh, it's a fertile soil, yep. and that about ten percent typically fall in there. Um, and then an area I call I don't know. Like maybe, like Airbnb, like people sleeping on your couch, like maybe. Couch surfing people are doing, but there's no money. I don't know, maybe. Yeah. And then the, the other 50% are probably, that's going to waste your life's energies. And if I could be helpful to you to keep you from wasting two or three years going down that path, I would like to do that if you're not going to slug me for telling right. me your baby's ugly. And what, what are common trends of, of, of those that are, that are really bad? Is it too crowded, too, um, you know, it's just no room there? 
it's deregulated. The most common thing is now that it's 2019 and the internet's 24 years old or 25 years old is that it's been tried so many times and we've already identified what the impediments are. And if you just do some historical studying, you'll realize it's not a good idea. And uh, I'm I'm shocked a little bit by uh, people who come to this de novo as if no one has tried this before. Uh, They just need to do their homework. And I think a lot of people don't do their homework because they've found an idea that excites them and they really don't want to know. So what are some of the hidden patterns of great startup ideas or or what what sort of are non-obvious things that people don't appreciate about good startup ideas? So one of them is that you want to find businesses typically which have either a lot of people who want to do them, like you're talking about a LinkedIn, everyone wants to have a professional profile, or therapy, everyone can use therapy every day, frankly, right? I mean, that's what most of our human relationships are anyway, if you want to look at it that way. you know, so there's a lot of people want to do something and you can extract a little bit of money out of them. Or you want to find something with a high ASP average sales price, um, like um, an Airbnb. Like, oh, it's $420 a night down in Los Angeles. Whoa, that's, you know. Or renting an RV, that's $1,400. Um, and, and most people try to find something in between. Like one, one thing that's been in between that actually worked, so it's not a great example, is Match.com. Yeah. It's like... $60 ASP, $80 ASP, uh, but obviously it's a huge need everyone has. So people are yeah. clicking on it and doing it over and over again. But that's a really tough business to make great yeah. uh, because it's in that middle ground. And so I see a lot of people target things where uh, they don't have that mix right between average sales price and frequency. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that we see particularly in marketplaces. Match is really interesting because they sort of built a conglomerate of different dating, you know, uh, businesses, OkCupid, Tinder, many others. Um, is that is something unique to dating that allows them to build a sort of conglomerate or should someone build that for recruiting or, or other categories? It's, it's, you know, people will hate me for this, but it's, it's basically that all those businesses are mediocre generally. And so you, maybe not Tinder, actually. I don't know their mechanics, but I knew the mechanics of the the predecessors of Tinder, so I won't speak about that. But most of those businesses' mechanics weren't great, and therefore you had to aggregate them into something so sizable that you could sustain Uh, And you built a... I think think OkCupid, which was amazing, got sold for like 50 million bucks, which is amazing for for Sam, and 50 million, let's not be snobby about that. That's that's great outcome for the founders, but but it's not what drives venture returns. and you built a dating company? Or, or there was a Tickle dating service, right? We did. Yeah. We did. Is, there, um, is the fundamental problem with dating that you're misaligned with your user, basically? Or, or like, are you unlikely to invest from NFX in a dating company? Yeah, there's just a lot of churn because people, you know, they start dating, they have to get off, or their boyfriend will be upset with them, or whatever. There's, there's a lot of churn. Um, there's a lot of competition. Um, the, uh, you have a network effect where if you tip under a certain level, there won't be enough people in there and the whole yeah. thing unravels right. and so it's hard to maintain the, the 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 size you need to even have a viable dating service yeah. um and so and and they aren't really uh viral themselves yeah they they aren't super viral i think tinder was because it was the first you know, mobile one but that was 10 12 years ago so it's like yeah. they, they, there was a moment that they had and now it's harder to do that let's talk about venture you were in battery 1990s? Yeah, I was in the 90s, yeah. I was an associate there, smiling, dialing, trying yeah. to give people our money. Totally. So you've been venture, you know, in investing and building companies off and on for, you know, 20 plus years now. How have you seen venture evolve and how do you expect 
venture to evolve in the next decade because some people say you know it hasn't really evolved that much yeah, it's still, it still the same old thing it and hasn't. 10 years from now it's going to look pretty similar yeah. how, how do you think about that yeah, I think uh, venture is slow to evolve for the same sorts of psychological reasons we were talking about, keep other things from happening. Um, but I do think that it is going to evolve more quickly in the next 10 years than it did in the prior 20. I think the big thing that's changed is the blogosphere, which is not a word you've heard in a few years, but the blogosphere kind of came out in 2004, 2005. I think David Hornick was the first one to create a blog, and then Fred Wilson was the first one to build one that got any amount of traffic. And, and then the reason that very few VCs were blogging even until 2009 was because it used to be a cloister, what we call white shoe industry. Yeah. Um, at Battery Ventures in Boston, you know, my boss was like, why would we get a PR firm? And I was 24. And I was like, no, no, we need a PR firm uh, because we have to build our brand so that the, the, you know, the founders prefer us and, and that Wall Street prefers us. Yeah. And they're like, you're crazy. Like, we don't need to talk about ourselves. There was about 80 venture firms in the country at the time. And, and um, it was traditionally very white shoe and very closed. And, and you, were, you were discreet. That was one of the reasons that the founders trusted you. And that was one of the reasons that the LPs trusted you is you were discreet. The LPs are still very discreet, by the way. You know, people ask me, who are your LPs? And the LPs have told me, don't really tell people. Like, is that going to evolve? Because we move from... I, I think it will. I think yeah. it will. Yeah. I think it will. Um, but it might evolve much more slowly because those, you know, anyway. So, uh, so first of all, very few people were... Blog. Now, venture capitalists like me and you yeah. are just blogging like crazy. And we're just telling everybody all of our thoughts. So if you're a founder, you can learn so much more in 72 hours than you could have in three years, 20 years ago. So that's been the major change, I think, for venture capitalists. It's opened up and it's now much more transparent. That will continue to the point where there's just gonna be playbooks. People are gonna go out and they're gonna take your blog posts and my blog posts and blog posts from Andreessen and they're going to combine them together into a website where you just click the button to start a company or something. Like, yeah. It's going to get more and more paint-by-numbers. Yeah. And <clears throat> people are going to become more and more. You know, you're going to be able to go in and put in your LinkedIn profile, and you're going to get a feedback on your founder potential. Yeah. Like where you're strong, where you're weak. That, I, all this stuff is going to happen where uh, there's going to be websites where all the attempts to do loyalty programs for bars and restaurants in New York, of which I think there have been, at last count, 78,000 of them, startups who try to do that. I'm just kidding. But it's like every other day, right? Um, every 28-year-old guy in New York wants to start that company. Yes. <clears throat> Uh, there will be a website chronicling all those companies yeah. in a way that founders can then go learn the lessons and realize that's not a good idea. So, history, so we as an industry are going to provide information that's going to keep people from wasting two or three years of their lives going down these, these difficult roads yeah. and, and finding stuff in fertile areas because there's always new fertile areas. So um, I, think, I think you're going to see an evolution there. And of course, you're going to see an evolution with data. And we're already seeing more and more data at Series C you know, um, and you're going to see it in Series B and then A. And each venture firm is going to be building their own proprietary thing. I know there's a, a company that Ribbit Capital invested in called Synergy or something, Syzygism or no, something like that. And they're aggregating all the data and they're making it available to people who are investing in, you know, Series B and C. And already everyone's getting access to the same amount of data, just like Bloomberg gave us the access to the data, you know, back in 1983 for the bond market when, when I was a child. Um, which I don't remember, I just read about it later. But 
that really changed that industry. And I think you're going to see a similar evolution of data access that's going to be adopted over the next decade. And it'll be interesting to see how much that changes or not. I think there's a lot of people with hopes that they're going to do a lot of machine learning yeah. and AI on data. And I'm like, hmm, we'll see. Yeah. You know, as, as we talked about some of the non-fertile things that I see in startups, a lot of people come and say, oh, I'm going to do all this machine learning and AI and I'm going to get this answer. And I'm like, yeah, maybe. Do you think a, uh, a private Wikipedia uh, is fertile soil? Basically, uh, Charlie Cheever once told me his sort of, uh, him and Adam D'Angelo's sort of idea for Quora was there's a lot of valuable information that people's, if there's valuable pe- information in people's heads that's not on the internet, it will be at some point. And, and if there's valuable information, it'll be valuable business. And I, I often go to what people really think about each other. That's really valuable information. You know, companies are a reference check. I think there's something to do in reference checking because we keep, you know, there's so much redundant work that's happening there. And then Wikipedia, there's just an opportunity to make it so much more expert, so much better. And maybe a private company could do that. How do you think about, one, that framework of if there's valuable information that people's heads not on the internet, it will be at some point. And two, Wikipedia specifically. I think I think creating a private Wikipedia doesn't sound right now. I mean, oh. for profit. Sorry, for profit. For profit Wikipedia. Oh yeah, I mean that could work. In terms of making Wikipedia a lot better, we we started a project in two thousand eight to try to you know the the, the medical information yeah. called Medpedia, and it was a joint venture between Harvard Medical School, Stanford Medical School, and and Google Labs, and. and it was a very interesting experiment because at the time the Wikipedia articles on medicine were really not good, and. WebMD was similarly not good, but they had all the traffic, and so we were kind of aiming to take down WebMD. And we got 15,000 great pages up of really great content, and the traffic started coming our way from Google. And this lasted for about two years until about 120 guys in India, men and women, probably 18 years old, not MDs, not PhDs, because we restricted you could, to, to be on Medpedia, you had to be an MD or a PhD because we didn't want people putting up fallacious medical information. Well, these people were just on Wikipedia in India. They made so much better medical information than we had on Medpedia within a year. Wow. So I'm actually a big believer in, in the crowdsource thing, and I, yeah. I think it's going to get hard to, to, to do Wikipedia better. But what, but what you're pointing out is that a lot of the knowledge or ideas that really make things work still doesn't exist on the internet or isn't findable and won't be necessarily easily findable and finding a way to unlock that and bring that to people in a systematic way seems like a great opportunity because right now it's being done in closed doors where people are saying stuff that they could never say on the internet or the mob would come out and take them down And so there's a lot of information out, you know, that's being used to navigate the world and to succeed or to heal or whatever that no one would ever publish on the internet. So how do you get that out onto the internet? That's an interesting challenge. Well, your your experience with Medpedia is so interesting because that's a space that you would have thought, oh, only the experts really have the knowledge. We should go there, and yet, you know, all these, you know, quote unquote, lay people do. And what are other certain nutrition? You know, name a bunch of categories. Investing. Um, Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Correct. And I'll tell you what we we didn't believe that that was we didn't believe you needed MDs and PhDs, but we couldn't launch that thing without putting that restriction on it because the MDs and PhDs who are gating the status and the prestige wouldn't let us do it. That was the only way for us to get out the gate and get the thing going. Yeah. 
that leads to another sort of investment thesis I have or, or interest, that, which is take a, a category that has gatekeepers and really analyze those gatekeepers. Are they artificial uh, or are they real? Um, and what is the difference between, you know, for the average person between an expert therapist and a great listener coming out of, you know, in college looking to make some extra money on the side? <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. You know, I'm curious about NFX itself. So when you began, you began uh, via an accelerator program or a guild uh, program, um, and you've transitioned to... It was an accelerator program. Yeah, an accelerator. And, 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 and then the group of people we invested in, we called the guild. Yes. And so we, we still invest as a venture capital firm. So NFX is yes. a venture capital firm. Um, and we still invest and we still call those companies in our guild. Right. But you've evolved the model in that you're, you're leading seed rounds, even leading series A, a rounds. Is it something that you, um, did something change in terms of what you believed about the opportunity or your skills or your interests, um, or, or was that your strategy all along? How have you thought about the evolution of, of NFX? Yeah. So, so our goal is to do as much as we can to transform entrepreneurship, technology, society, leadership. I mean, we're, we're really interested in, in working with world leaders yeah. and people who are going to lead the world. Um, and technology is the biggest lever for young people to to get a purchase in the world of leadership, right? I mean, you can climb up in Congress in Washington D.C., or you can build something amazing in technology, and then and then suddenly you're doing important stuff. So that's that's really what our what our goal is. And uh, the accelerator was one um, instantiation of that. And the venture firm um, that we're now running and have been running for a little over two years. Um, lets us scale that up, we thought, faster. Um, allowed us to raise a $150 million fund and now a $275 million fund allows us to um, you know, bring on a whole staff of 25 people to help us build software and, and do other things that will help those founders and give them a platform to support the founders. And so we felt like that vehicle would be a faster moving vehicle into the future. Um, and then we're, uh, every year we reevaluate what our big moonshot projects are and um and uh you know we're in that process this month which is super fun yeah um but but yeah that that was really the evolution of it was how how can we move forward fastest in you know impacting the most founders and in the deepest way and one of those ways is publishing a lot of content and you know sort of turning out the things we think of another way is by developing software people can use to communicate their business idea using like you know the companybrief.com or finding the venture person who should invest in them using signal.com or whatever yeah. so i, w- I want to close with some some questions uh for founders so one is um you've had the great framework for thinking about different stages of company building one is your product market fit then the scale then it's reinforcement i'm curious if you can get to sort of the different psychology for the CEO or for the leadership team among those three different stages and how they should operate differently as they think about altering between them. And then the second question in closing is, is what can the founder better appreciate about the psychology of VCs and how VCs operate in terms of how to best work with them or what, what is underappreciated there? Yeah, I mean, all this is psychology when it comes yeah. down to it, right? It's all about language, it's all about psychology. And uh, yeah, for founders, there's definitely different phases. And at the beginning, you have to be such a commando you have to really not care about getting things perfect. You got to just move forward. Um, you've got to break things, and and you know this whole move fast and break things that is a phrase that is now deprecated uh, by the East Coast media. Uh, it's actually true, and that's what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. We're we're the kooky guy in the garage. 
That's who we are. Yeah. And uh, a society needs that. An earth needs that. Yeah. And that's our role. So we're supposed to break things, um, like the guy in Back to the Future or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and, then, and then as you get to the scaling point, um, you know, the mentality needs to then be about much more about empowerment where it's just about people, 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 people. You go from being a product person or a salesperson or whatever to being a recruiter and a hirer yeah. and uh, a coach. And then that's the phase that you need to be in as a founder. And then when you get to the sort of the going IPO, you need to be um, somewhat of a diplomat, right? Yeah. Because you've got so many stakeholders at that point that you need to be very careful with your language. Uh, you need to uh, be very aware of all the psychology of the people around you so that you can navigate that that later phase. And my, my great partner, Pete Flint, who started Truly in 2004 and then um, you know took it public, you know he went through all those phases. I've never taken a company public, but you know um, he's a great one to talk to about that because uh, they really are uh, different phases of your mind and different skill sets. And you, you have to mourn you know, giving up the thing you loved in the last phase at every time. And many founders don't do that, and then they resist themselves, and it all gets janky, and we can all feel it while yeah. we watch them move through it. But if you move uh, gently between these phases by understanding your own psychology and understanding the needs of each phase, it's going to be much better for you and, and yeah. a more enjoyable ride. And then what about the psychology of a venture capitalist? Oh, yeah. Work? I mean, I've been a, venture, a VC now for two years and, and you know, obviously worked with a lot of wonderful VCs over the years. Um, and worked at Battery and et cetera, et cetera. Um, the VC psychology is tough. I think the one of the things to know about the VCs is that they don't like saying no to founders, yeah. but they have to. That's their job. Their, their job is to find the very few investments which will return their fund multiple times over. And that's, that's a constraint of the venture capital model. Yeah. That's not the VC's fault that that's what the limited partners need, that that's what portfolio theory demands. That's just math. That's just LP money seeking highest returns. Yeah. Okay. So VCs are in this position of being Janus. They have to speak to the LPs with one language, and they have to speak to the founders with a different language. And if the founders saw how they were talking to the LPs, they'd be shocked and probably disappointed. And if the LPs saw how they were talking to the founders, they'd probably be shocked and disappointed. Um, because those are different worlds. Yeah. The, the, the founders are the creative commandos, and the LPs are the staid and you know, yeah. slow-moving, and they, they are the, the gatekeepers. They keep our society on track. We yeah. need them, but it's a whole different world, and yeah. they do a great job, and their personalities and their expertise, it's like they do a great job of what they do, and, and boy, are we lucky to have them, because you go around the world, and you don't have people doing that, and it's a mess. So we're so lucky here in the States to have that. We're the envy of the world. Um, but it's, it's a different thing. So the, you see these VCs, and they have to speak out of uh, in two directions, number one. Number two, they don't like doing their main job, which is to say no. And so you know, imagine what that does to you over time. Uh, it makes you quite negative because you have to get to the no quicker so that you can get on to the, the, the one that you're going to see this. You know, look, most of these Series A companies, they invest in maybe two companies a year. That's one every six months. Well, think of all the meetings that you're taking before you get to that one. And, uh, and so th that, that negative energy or that negative thinking or that why am I going to say no, what's wrong with this, that pervades a lot of people. And, and uh, you know, at NFX, we, we, we knew this coming in. And as a four-time founder and Geeking Pete, having founded so many companies, I mean, together we, 
as you know, we've, we exited $10 billion of companies, yeah. which was twice as much as Andreessen when they started their firm. And so we're founders at heart, and we, we, we guard against any of that negativity coming into us because what we want to do is be able to sit down and say, what can this be? What can this be without getting too irrational and then investing in all these great entrepreneurs and all these interesting ideas yeah. and then having a crappy portfolio? We can't, we can't do that to our LPs. Yeah. So there's that real balance. And I think that if, um, uh, and I think if the founders understood those two challenges they face psychologically, I think they'd understand a little bit more about how the VCs are. And, and I don't want to go on too long, but the, I as a founder uh, didn't always appreciate the real math behind it. You know, see a thousand companies, talk to 250 face to face or 300 face to face, and pick three. Yeah. It's like, whoa! I, I got a meeting with so and so. Why didn't he invest? Well, because he's only going to invest in maybe one percent of the ones that yeah. he or she meets with, and and it's almost like you don't want to tell yourself that as a founder, because then why would I take the meeting at all if the probability is one percent? Totally. And also the power law math that uh, if even if you are in the portfolio. You know, you're one of 20 or one of 50 or one of 200, and the VC is only going to make their money off one or two or three companies. And um, it's sort of it's interesting where it's, that's why the sort of, you know, binary or bust, you know, go big or go home. And sometimes you're aligned, sometimes you're, you're not aligned if you're having a middling outcome. And a lot of it's driven, I think people don't realize, by the LPs too, because LPs have a portfolio of venture funds. So they need their venture funds to sort of go big or go home. There's no sort of lifestyle VCs that take you know, repeatable 2X or, or whatnot. No, they need them to take big swings. I sort of say, joke, everyone's diversifying upon someone else's concentrated strategy. That's right. Um, it's you know, all the way down. That's right. And as a founder, you don't want to go big or go home because right. you've only got one egg in one exactly. basket. Yeah. And so I've been interested in, in what are ways in which we can encourage more people to be founders. And maybe, maybe you would um, dispute the premise. Um, either by making them scouts or giving them equity and other things, or I've, I've been interested in founder pooling. Do you, you know, any, everyone in the guild, for example, put up, you know, 0.25% of your company or, or something, or help people get health insurance easier. Um, is there anything that you've seen, you think could uh, help more people start companies, or do you think that's, that's the wrong goal and actually we have enough people starting companies um, and it, the, how difficult it is? To get there are two things. There are two, there's lots of things, but I'll give you two things. One is um, startups... Uh, and VCs need to do a better job of recruiting kids out of college. Yeah. Bringing them into the startup life um, in geographies where there's a real startup ecosystem where they can get the positive feedback loop on that. Because what's happening in, in a lot of these colleges is that Goldman Sachs and BCG and everybody goes in and they have tons of dollars. They basically own the career placement office. And they get every, give everyone interviews in September of their senior year. And then they give them a deadline of October 10th to decide. They have huge signing bonuses and all of their friends are going to be with them in New York or in Baltimore or whatever. And we lose a lot of incredible people who could be great founders to the track, to doing the right thing on the next step, which is what they've already been doing. And they've never known anything else, so why would they step off? And So we need to do a much better job of, of reaching out. The problem that I've found in doing that is that the rate of return is so incredibly low it's not worth the time, yeah. particularly on the East Coast. Um, and so, so we've kind of taken a step back and we're going to launch a different program that, that, as we can over time. Um, the second thing I would say is that we've got to, I believe, develop a cultural norm that staying past four and a half years in one of these big tech companies is um, it's wrong. 
you shouldn't do it. You kind of have a responsibility now that you know what it looks like to run a high-performance tech company. You have a responsibility to come out and take your shot at it. You have to teach the rest of us. You have to bring people together and use your credibility and knowledge to do something much more important in the world, which is to start something new. And I'd love for us in Silicon Valley to start advocating this idea that, come on, dude, you've been there four and a half years. It's really not okay for you to stay 10 years at Google. Like, I get it. It's comfy and the lunches are good and they're telling you you're having an impact, but you've already made enough money. And you could make even more of an impact by creating something new in the world. So I actually think that we do need more founders, uh, but we just need to make sure that we're getting the right personality types. You know, I think there's a lot of people who think, well, startups seem to be making money in Silicon Valley, and I could either make money with Goldman Sachs or I could or, you know, make money doing a startup. I don't, I don't think we should have those people become startup people, I think. <laughs> I think I think they're doing it for the wrong reason. I think this whole money culture, which has you know, crept into the valley, is, is the, the big sucking energy. You know, it's, it's the big sucking noise that's really ruining the, uh, what we have here. So it shouldn't be a reason to start a, a right. company. Making yeah. money should not be a reason because yeah. it's an irrational act. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of suffering. When I went back to my Harvard Business School reunion, they said, you know, what could we do better? I said, you guys need to do a better job of explaining how much you suffer when you start a startup yeah. and that you really have to be on board for that if yeah. you're going to do it. Yeah. And they said, yeah, well, tell us more. And so they've done a bunch of, a bunch of really good cases since then on you know, how yeah. you have to suffer to make it, make it work. Be honest about the pains of running a company, and then also you think about the contribution that you're you're making to the world with your startup. Exactly, and understand your place in the world. You're you're so fortunate in time and place to be able to do something like that and have that personal self-expression out there in the world. Yeah. Such a lucky, lucky time. If you're an entrepreneur building something uh, in, uh, awesome, uh, uh, you'd be very lucky to have James on, on your cap table, uh, James, Pete, or Giggy, or anyone at, at uh, NFX. We love working with them and and are excited to do more together. Um, James, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Oh, yes, my pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 